If you would turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 17. This morning we're looking at Exodus chapter 17 starting at verse 8 through the end of chapter 18. Uh, we've been looking at this book of Exodus for a while now uh, under the heading from bondage to belonging because that's the journey that God leads the Israelites on in this book. Uh, they begin as slaves in the land of Egypt crying out for God's help and God's mercy and God's deliverance and we've seen so far how God has intervened and rescued them and then how he's been walking with them through the wilderness as they've been heading toward Mount Sinai where they'd learn what it means to belong to him and his people as God's people. Uh, so we're in this uh, part of Exodus where the people are, are uh, in the wilderness and uh, that's the section we're looking at this morning. Uh, they have been hungry and God's provided food. They've been thirsty and God's provided water. And here they face some other challenges. So chapter 17, beginning at verse 8, uh, says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and, your two, and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? 
and all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. I wonder if you have become weary, discouraged, or fatigued as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a participant in his church. You know, many people have uh, decided to just give up on going to church. According to a recent study, about 40 million adults in America, that's 16% of the adult population, about one out of every six people, used to go to church at least once a month, but now they attend less than once a year. Now, some of these people have left the Christian faith entirely, uh, but most still agree with basic Christian beliefs. Most still believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet they've given up attending church. Uh, now, why are so many people leaving the church? Some researchers have uh, done this study to try to understand, better understand people's reasons. Uh, so they uh, talked to several thousand people, uh, and one quarter of the people in their study who stopped going to church said they left primarily because of a negative, negative experiences in the church. Clergy scandals, hypocrisy, and other hurtful experiences. Uh, three quarters said that they stopped attending church primarily because of practical reasons. They moved, they got married, they got divorced, they had a child, their kids got involved in activities that conflicted with church on Sunday mornings. They got out of the habit of attending church during COVID and never came back, or for whatever reason, it was just too inconvenient. Uh, now, interestingly, whatever the reason that people had left, uh, more than half of those who left uh, Bible-based or Christ-centered churches said that they are willing to come back right now. That's an interesting finding. Most people haven't sort of left and uh, won't take a second look. Most people are actually open to trying it out again. And according to the survey, the two things that most people are looking for are number one, healthy relationships, and number two, a local church that actively demonstrates how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ, is true and good and beautiful. Uh, the study is called The Great de 
you can uh, look it up online and find summaries of it. There's a book uh, coming out about it. Uh, and I think there's plenty to ponder and discuss from it about how we can grow as a healthy church and how we can engage people who might have given up on church or who might have never uh, been a part of a church in their life. But you know, it's not just people who have given up on church who become weary or discouraged. I think many of us who are still sitting here this morning have felt the same things. Weariness, fatigue, discouragement, we feel beleaguered. Uh, following Jesus and participating in his church sometimes feels like an uphill battle where we're always uh, struggling against some kind of resistance or other, whether it's negative experiences or practical hindrances. And in the section we just read, that's, what, uh, that's the situation that Moses and the Israelites found themselves in. God had already rescued them. He had already brought them out of bondage in Egypt, but now he's leading them through the wilderness, and in the wilderness... They encountered all kinds of resistance, all kinds of challenges. Uh, God's intention was that the wilderness would be a sort of training ground for them, a place where God was stretching them and bringing them to the limits of their human resources in order to teach them that they could always turn and trust in him and that the same God who had saved them would also sustain them in one way or another. So in the last two weeks, we've seen how God met their very practical, physical needs, namely hunger and thirst. Uh, but here, they face a different set of challenges. They face two challenges. First, they face external opposition in the end of chapter 17, and then they face internal strife in chapter 18. And uh, for each of these challenges, God sent help in an unexpected way. Uh, each of these challenges, it says, I'll get to it, but... It says that they made Moses or the people weary. And yet, in each, for each of these challenges, God intervened and helped them out. So today we're looking at how God helps us when we're weary and discouraged and fatigued, just as he helped the Israelites back then. So let's look at these two sections. Number one, uh, when we face external opposition. The end of chapter 17, verse, chapter 17, verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, Rephidim was mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 17. Uh, the people of Israel had been trekking through the wilderness for a few weeks by now. They had set up camp at Rephidim, but there was no water there, and they were very thirsty. And the people had gotten mad. People get mad quickly when they're thirsty or hungry, right? We all know that. Uh, we, that's why we have the word hangry, and maybe there's another word people make up related to thirsty and being angry. Um, but God graciously intervened and provided relief and refreshment uh, in the beginning of chapter 17, but then they get suddenly attacked. Amalek and his people abruptly show up. Now, Amalek was a grandson of Esau, according to Genesis 36, and his descendants, sometimes called the Amalekites, but here they're just called Amalek, became a nomadic group that periodically uh, attacked and plundered other groups. That's sort of how they how they, uh, their, their MO, that's how they sort of lived. And here, for the first time, they attacked the Israelites. Uh, and later on, Moses describes what happened here in Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. In other words, Amalek and his people targeted the weakest and the most vulnerable 
among the Israelites, the ones who were straggling at the back of the line, who couldn't quite keep up with everybody else, who might that have been, perhaps young children, families with young children, elderly people, disabled people, uh, anyone else, who, maybe somebody, anyone who was sick, and Amalek tried to cut them off and take advantage of them and cut them off from the rest of the people of Israel. Uh, this was the first time that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, but it wouldn't be the last. They attacked later on in the book of Numbers, multiple times in the book of Judges, and again in 1 Samuel. Uh, and every time that we encounter the Amalekites in the Bible, they're sort of the bullies on the block who pick on the Israelites and try to kick them when they're down and try to especially take advantage of the weakest and most vulnerable people among them. Uh, and they never change their attitude. So how did God provide for Israel when they were attacked by Amalek here in chapter 17? Well, God didn't do what he did uh, in, at, when they were being attacked by the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. So when the, remember a couple weeks ago, the people of Israel had left Egypt, they came to the Red Sea, the Egyptian army decided we're going to chase after them and enslave them again. And what did God say to Israelites when they were by the Red Sea? God said, don't fight. You don't have to do a thing. Just wait and be still and I'll deliver you. And God opened up the sea and sent an east wind and, and opened a way for them through the waters completely without their help or participation. God said, I want you to know that I can save you and I don't need your help and this time I just want you to watch. But here, God doesn't say, just watch, I'm going to save you. Verse 9, Moses tells Joshua, get together some men and go out and fight. Defend your people. And Moses also said in verse 9, tomorrow I'll go to the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. Now that's an interesting thing to do. Uh, you might say, why would Moses do that? He doesn't explain here, but so far in Exodus, the staff of God that Moses carried represented God's authority and God's power acting on behalf of the Israelites. So Moses struck the Nile with his staff and it turned to blood. Moses struck the or lifted up his staff above the Red Sea and the waters parted. He struck the rock, the water came out. So in all those cases, uh, represented God's power acting on behalf of the people. And again, that's what we see here. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, held up the staff, Israel prevailed in the battle. But whenever he lowered it, Amalek prevailed. You see, on a purely natural level, the Amalekites were... Uh, militarily superior to the Israelites. They had much more experience in battle. They probably had much better weapons, uh, and they were better trained, better armed. It was only by God's intervention that the people of Israel would win this battle, uh, that they wouldn't just have uh, uh, many of them wiped out. And so when Moses lifted up his hands, it was he was expressing his and the people's dependence on God's power to deliver them. He was saying, God, we're trusting you to win this battle because we're not strong enough to fight it by ourselves, even though Joshua was in the valley fighting. Uh, normally, when the ancient Israelites prayed, they would lift up their hands. Uh, you see this in some of the Psalms. Psalm 63, I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands or hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Um, so Moses is sort of expressing the people's dependence on God in prayer by lifting up his hands. But then in verse 12, we see the problem. 
Moses' hands grew weary. Now, if you've ever tried to keep your arms lifted up, try it sometime for 10 minutes. I bet you probably can't do it. Your arms will get tired. I'm not going to try in front of you because that'll just be a distraction. But um, if you've ever tried to keep your arms elevated for an extended period of time, no matter how young and strong you are, your arms will get tired, right? The, the blood doesn't, you know, gravity works. Anyway, so Moses couldn't keep his hands lifted up on his own. He needed help. And thankfully, his brother Aaron was there along with a guy named Hur, who was one of the elders of Israel. And these two guys get him a chair and stand beside him and hold up his hands until the end of the day. And Joshua and his men in the valley win a decisive victory. Verse 14 through 16, God tells Moses to remember this event by writing it down in a book, by building an altar to commemorate what God had, how God had delivered them from their, this enemy attack. And God also promised that he would remember this event, that he would continue to protect his people from Amalekite attacks in the future, and that eventually the Amalekites would be completely destroyed. So how did God provide for Israel when they faced external opposition? Well, God didn't intervene miraculously all on his own even though he had intervened miraculously many times in the recent past and God didn't tell Moses you do something and I'm going to work through you right like he did at the Red Sea Moses lifts up his staff the sea parts and the people go through that's all he has to do but Moses actually needs help here God worked through a team effort Joshua and his men fighting the battle in the valley, Moses and Aaron and Hur uh, standing on the hill. And God was teaching his people that when we face external opposition, we need to work together as a team. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, that's one important lesson that we can take from this story. God cares for us when we feel weary and vulnerable. God cares for his people when they're attacked or abused by self-serving bullies. And in the body of Christ, God wants us to look out for one another in this regard. You see, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites when they were all weary. They had been hungry and thirsty, and they had been going through the desert. It was, it's hot in the desert. You're unprotected from the, the sun. And they especially targeted the people at the end of the line. Now, the Amalekites as a group don't literally exist anymore, but there are still plenty of mean people in the world. Bullies, abusers, people who have no qualms about exploiting others. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should pray for mean people that God would change their hearts, right? God changed the heart of the Apostle Paul. He was pretty mean before he became a follower of Christ. But we should also look out for people among us who are weak and vulnerable and who have been hurt, who are under pressure. Uh, who, are, who are vulnerable for all kinds of reasons. We should do what we can to help and defend them, whether it's taking action like Joshua did or praying and depending on God like Moses and Aaron and Hur did. Because when we face external opposition, God wants us as the body of Christ to work together as a team. Uh, so that's how God sent help to his people uh, when they were weary because of external opposition. But in chapter 18... God's people are not weary because of external opposition. God's people are weary because of internal strife. Uh, the problem in this chapter is highlighted in verses 17 and 18. 
chapter 18, verse 17 and 18, Jethro says to Moses, what you're doing isn't good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. You see, the problem is the same in both stories. There's external opposition that makes the people weary, and even Moses can't, can't do his job all by himself. And now there's internal strife that is making Moses weary, and it's going to make everybody else weary as, as well. Uh, it's the same verb in verse 18 of chapter 18 as it was in chapter 17, verse 12. Um, so what's going on? Look at chapter 18, verse 13. Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Verse 16, Moses explains what he's doing. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. But there were so many disputes, there are so many unresolved issues within the people of Israel that people are waiting in line all day and they might have still been waiting in line at the end of the day and had to come back the next day and Moses never gets a break. It's not a good situation. It's not sustainable, as we would say. So how did God send help in this situation? Well, God sent help from an unexpected source. Namely, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, now, verse 1 tells us that Jethro was a priest, the priest of Midian. So, Jethro was not an Israelite. He was from a different tribe. Moses had lived among Jethro's tribe, the Midianites, for many years because he had, when he had fled from Egypt, uh, he had gone to live with, with the Midianites. He had married uh, Jethro's, one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah. And, and Moses had lived for many years there. So he had figured out how to uh, live among the Midianites, but he never felt at home there. And you, the reason why we know that is because of what, we, what he named his first son. His first son was named Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner or foreigner. Uh, in uh, chapter 18, verse 3, Moses says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Right? Um, but Jethro wasn't only from a different tribal background. Jethro was also from a different religious background. He didn't grow up worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. He grew up worshiping whatever gods the Midianites worshipped back then. And he had become a priest, a religious leader among the Midianites. So he and Moses would not have seen eye to eye about who God was and how God should be worshipped. But look at what happens in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 18. Moses tells Jethro about all that God has done on the Israelites' behalf. And in verse 9 through 12, Jethro, the Midianite priest, becomes a believer in the God of Israel, in the one true God. He says, verse 9, he rejoices in what God has done. Verse 10 and 11, he says, your God, the Lord, is greater than all other gods. He is the supreme God. And in verse 12, he worships God, and he's officially welcomed by the leaders of Israel as a fellow believer. Now imagine how unexpected and how encouraging this would have been for Moses, right? His father-in-law, the Midianite priest, comes to faith in the one true God. You know, maybe you have someone in your immediate family or in your extended family who you dearly love and respect, but who doesn't share your faith in Jesus. Maybe they follow no religion. Maybe they follow a different religion. And maybe you've prayed for this person for years or decades, hoping that they would come to faith in Jesus and be able to rejoice in him and trust in him like you do. 
Or maybe you're praying that they would come back to the church, that their faith in Jesus would be rekindled. Now, if that's you, don't give up praying. And if this person is willing to listen, don't be afraid to tell them about what the Lord has done. Now, sometimes people aren't willing to listen. Sometimes people have heard the message of Jesus Christ over and over and have become deeply resistant to it. In those cases, it's often best to do what 1 Peter 3 advises in a similar situation to remain quiet and prayerful and to let your actions speak louder than your words. Uh, but in Jethro's case, he and Moses evidently had a good relationship, a mutually respectful relationship. After all, Moses had sent his wife and kids to be with Jethro for a while, uh, probably because it was, would have been too dangerous for them while Moses was confronting Pharaoh in Egypt, and Pharaoh was very, <clears throat> very angry at Moses. Um, uh, so, uh, so Jethro and Moses evidently have a mutually respectful relationship. Jethro's open to hearing what Moses had to say. And notice what Moses said in verse 8. Uh, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So in other words, when Moses was talking to his father-in-law, who followed a different religion, Moses didn't give him a sort of one-sided sales pitch. He didn't just talk about the benefits of following God. He was also honest about the hard parts and the costs of following God. He told them about the hardship they had experienced and the challenges they had experienced along the way. Right? People don't want a one-sided sales pitch. Most people can see through that. Most peop but people can respect an honest invitation. And Jethro uh, responded positively to it. So isn't that in, that's an encouragement when God works in someone's life like he did with Jethro and they gladly embrace faith in Jesus, maybe for the first time ever. And that can be such an enc encouragement to see a new believer come to life by the power of God. Uh, you know, we can't make that happen. We can't force that to happen. None of us can. But when it does happen, what a joy it is. Uh, and that's a joy that God gave Moses through Jethro. Uh, but God didn't just help Moses by bringing Jethro to faith. God also sent Jethro to Moses to give Moses some needed advice uh, in uh, the second half of chapter 18. Uh, when Jethro sees what's going on, he sees Moses sitting there all day, the people standing in line forever, Moses giving decisions from dawn till, <clears throat> till dusk. Jethro didn't remain quiet. Verse 14, he basically says, what in the world are you doing? sitting around here by yourself all day, you can't do this. This won't work. And in verse 19 through 23, he proposed a solution, a multi-tiered judicial system. He says, you teach the people, but then you delegate authority to trustworthy men. Let them handle most of the cases. And he says, if you don't delegate, you won't last very long. But he says in verse 23, if you do delegate, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Now let me ask, if you were in Moses' position, how would you have responded to Jethro's advice? Think about it. Moses was an established leader among the Israelites. He had heard the voice of God directly calling him. He had done miracles. The people knew him. He belonged to their tribe. Jethro was none of those things. 
He was an outsider from a different tribe, a different background, a new kid on the block, and he had just come to faith in the God of Israel. If we're honest, some of us don't like to listen to advice from people who haven't been around as long as we have. At the same time, some of us who are newer on the block can be too quick to give advice before we listen or take time to really know what's going on. In both cases, the problem is pride. And the solution is humility and learning to, be, to listen and be patient. But think about it even more. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. Now, some of us have a great relationship with our in-laws and are happy to hear their advice, and there's no problems there. But sometimes relationship with in-laws can be complicated, right? Some people are overly eager to please. Family members can't imagine not taking their advice, and some of us might be overly resistant to taking any advice from a relative, right? Uh, but here's the thing. God sends Moses help from his relative who hadn't done any miracles at all. And Moses needs to listen to him. So here's the point. God can use whoever he wants to help his people when we're weary. When the people were facing opposition from the outside, God raised up people from the inside, Aaron and her and Joshua, to stand with Moses and help him. But when they were facing internal strife, God sent someone from the outside, Jethro, to come and join the people and have a new perspective that would be very helpful to Moses and the people going forward. So here's the challenge of chapter 18 is this. Are we ignoring the help that God is sending our way because it doesn't come in the package we expect it to? That's the challenge of this chapter. Sometimes God is sending us help when we're weary, but we have to be willing to accept it, even from a different source than we expect. But the invitation of this chapter is to come before God and each other with humility, right? To admit when we're weary and discouraged. Sometimes even that is hard to do. Sometimes it's easier to just plow ahead and say, I'm fine. Why do you think I need help? I don't need help. But sometimes when people do that for long enough, they either explode or they collapse suddenly. But really, they've been weary and discouraged and fatigued for a long time building up to that. It's hard to admit that we need help, but we all do at one point or another, and it's a good thing to be able to do that. So humility looks like admitting when we're weary and discouraged, accepting the help that God sends us, no matter who it comes from, because we can always learn something from whoever God sends our way, whatever it might be. And humility also looks like being willing to let go and delegate authority to capable and trustworthy people at the appropriate time. All right, so far, Moses had been the only judge in Israel. Everyone, if they wanted a verdict, if they wanted wisdom from God, they had to come to him. And now Moses had to let go of some of his role. Moses had to let go of some of the work that, he, that only he had done for so long and let other people be a part of it. And, of course, he still would play an important role. Moses wasn't abdicating and he wasn't going to do nothing. No, Moses still had a very important role, but God was building a team around him. And so Moses had to rejoice 
when other capable and trustworthy people would take some of what he used to do and carry it on even better, perhaps even more effectively than he would have been, a been able to do on his own. You see, none of those things are easy to admit when we're weary and discouraged, to accept whatever help God sends us, and to let go at times, at appropriate times, uh, and delegate authority to others. But if we come before God in humility, and if we receive the help that he sends us, the encouragement from this passage is God sends the help we need when we're weary and discouraged and beleaguered so that we don't fall by the wayside. God protected the people, even the people who were the most vulnerable at the end of the line, so they wouldn't be cut off from everyone else, so they wouldn't just be killed or kidnapped or taken advantage of. And God kept the people together and gave them strength to go on. And that's what he does through the Holy Spirit and as we depend on Jesus together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you're a God who helps us when we are weary. Your word says those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Lord, we pray that we would turn to you, wait upon you, receive the help that you give us, and that we would be strengthened to continue on our pilgrimage with you, to continue on our journey with you, all the way to the promised land, all the way to the end of our lives and into all eternity, that you would give us that perseverance and endurance and joy and hope uh, that comes from you being with us. We thank you for what we can learn from these stories from long ago. We pray that we'd be experiencing uh, your provision in our daily lives and that we would be able to share with one another how you have come alongside us and encouraged us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.